Julius Speer, he was a hand reader and hand reading in itself is looked down upon, dismissed, forgotten, ignored by regular science. Jungians have not paid attention to Julius Speer. Last Christmas, I got a copy of the diaries of Ette Hillesson, including the letters that this young, brilliant Jewish woman wrote from the transit camp Westerbork before she was transported to Auschwitz. Besides being moved by the expression of her faith in times of human catastrophe, I got interested in her relationship to Julius Speer, a man who is presented as her union analyst and a hand reader and the one who inspired her to write the diaries in the first place. This curiosity led me to seek connections between Judas Speer, Ette Hillesum and Sigi Jung, and I discovered the scholarship of Alexandra Nagen, who has researched and published on exactly this matter and whose dissertation was on Julius Speer. Jung met with Julius Speer in the 1920s. He was impressed by his skills in reading hands as a psychological tool of diagnosing the potential in a human being. He sent him off to Berlin with a recommendation letter, which led to Speer developing a busy practice and an until now forgotten psychological technique called psychochirology, combining elements of Jungian psychology with hand reading. Few people know that in the 1920s there was a bustling scene for this, with its epicenter in Berlin, and that also Jungians were trained and continued to practice hand reading long into the later parts of the 1900s. This is the fascinating story of the forgotten Jungian hand reader Julius Speer, his relationship to Jung and Ette Hillesu. As our guide, we're lucky to have Alexandra Nagen, who first of all will share some of what led her into spending more than 20 years researching this exciting, forgotten and often looked down upon field of psychological study. Okay, I, I've studied twice. Once I did in a technical engineering studies, but that's ages ago. And then in the 2000s, I began a new studies at the University of Amsterdam in the history of Western esotericism. And that was then a new field. It still is a young field, but it's blossoming. I'd been working in a new age bookshop and that wasn't giving me the satisfaction that I was looking for, but and so I was very happy when I saw this new study in Amsterdam and it's through the study, my second study in the history of Western esotericism that I had to write papers and through working on papers, I stumbled through a course on Kabbalah about Jewish people to whom were ascribed paranormal or extraordinary gifts. And I was writing papers on various uh, persons like Wolf Messing is one of them. Erik Jan Hanessen is another one. And when I was doing that, then I was publishing brief articles for um, a magazine. And then the editor of the magazine asked me, have you delved into Julius Speer? 
And I knew Julie Spear, of course, because I had read The Interrupted Life by Eddie Hillison. And when you have read that, you know that Julie Spear was a very important figure in her life. Now, when I was asked about Julie Spear, I had the, some experience with looking into obscure figures and, get, and find data about them. So in no time, I found data about Julie Spear that was neglected or forgotten or not looked into by Etty Hillesum studies. Well, Julius Spear, he was a hand reader and hand reading in itself is looked down upon, dismissed, forgotten, ignored by regular science. It's not even looked into by just history of ideas or some uh, something. It's just palmistry is done, everybody knows that, but how it evolved over the centuries, that's a complete, that's a forgotten field and it's a field looked down upon. So Jungians have not paid attention to Julius Speer or to Hans Jacobi, for instance, and a graphologist who was also highly influenced by uh, Jung. Mm. That the same happened with the studies about the studies about Etty Hillison. So her diaries were so interesting that it really rocketed with interest in her and studies done about her. There have been more than one dissertations spent on her. And then always Julius Spear is mentioned as a very in influential figure in her life. But that's it. So they go off to another tangent. Mm. Because Julius Spear also, when, when the diaries came out first in 1981, Spear has been mentioned, but he has, uh, some acknowledge him or they acknowledge him, but very often he must have been a charlatan and hand reading can be no good. There's nothing valid to it. So there are preconceived ideas about what Spear did. Mm. not worth looking into. So it took 40 years when I did my, no, 30 years. When I began my research, I started in 2008 and then officially in 2011 11 or 12 with my dissertation. And I did, I defended my dissertation in 2020. Mm. And I've been the first to really look into Spear. Some of the people are listening to this uh, podcast. They are not familiar with Spear. They might yeah. know Etihelison's name, but many yeah. people, unfortunately, okay. don't even know her. Could you just give us a short... Who, who okay, about... She was a Jewish woman born in 1914 in Middelburg, uh, a province or a city in the Netherlands. Her father was a, a Jew. Her mother was also Jewish, but she was a refugee from Russia somewhere. So she, she had come from Russia to the Netherlands and her parents met in Amsterdam, married in Hilversum, a different city. And soon after she was born, she was the eldest of three children. So born, she was born in Middelburg in 1914. The family moved to various towns in the Netherlands and Etty, very bright young woman, she began to study in Amsterdam in 1933. She had finished her studies in law, I think around 1938, 
maybe 1939. I'm not sure about that year. And she was living in Amsterdam um, with a, a landlord, uh, a widower. His name is Han Begeriff, an accountant. And his son, and he rented out rooms and she was renting one of those rooms, but in exchange for helping out with some household chores. So she had to make the beds and help with setting the table for breakfast and in the evening and help with washing dishes and be the lady of the house after Hans Pier or Han Begeriff had become a widow. He had four children. One was still living at home. The others had either married or lived elsewhere. Now, Etty was living with him and she was having an intimate relationship with him. She had many boyfriends. Inwardly, she was troubled. She had many headaches, uh, stuffy nose, didn't know what to do with her life. Even though she had uh, finished her degrees in law, she kept on studying Slavic languages because her, that relates to her mother being a Russian. So she was interested in re Russian literature and kept on studying. Now, being the troubled person she was and living in a house with more people renting rooms in the house, one of those persons renting a room was Bernard Meiling. And he had been, an, they called that an object, a, a person of study for Julius Speer. So Speer was a hand reader, more about him later. He had fled from Germany to Amsterdam, and he was continuing his practice as a hand reader in Amsterdam, and he was uh, teaching others how to read hands according to his method. And for this course, he used individuals as guinea pigs. And Etty's housemaid, Bernard, had been a guinea pig. And he told her, well, you should go. And she did. And she was very curious what a palmist could be able to tell her about herself. So she was excited in a sensational way of going to him. And then she was there on February the 3rd, 1941. The war had been going on for already almost a year. She was there and he read her hands and there were two, three, maybe four other students there as well, because she was an object. See, and she was stunned by everything that he was telling her about herself. Within a month, she or to a, a public lecture that Spear held, and she went for a private session, may, yeah, probably on March 8th, so a month later. And the day after, she began her diary. And her diaries were published, or parts of her diaries were published in 1981. So that's 40 years late. She died in Auschwitz in, they say, they assume November 1943. So within the two years, two and a half years, the diaries, or yeah, they even less than that, but her diaries and letters are comprised in her writings, and that's known as the work of Etty Hillison. And these diaries are extraordinary. She definitely had a, uh, a talent for writing, 
she's very honest on the paper in on paper she's also practicing her writing skills she knew many people so many people feature in her writings her life the war it's really an amazing body of work and once that got published in 81 a section of it it spread the world so four years later i think it was four years later the complete diaries were published because the section was giving not the complete picture of her work so they decided to to make an annotated version so with all the people that they had discovered who, uh, who were in the diary so there is a big apparatus of notes and it was Julius Speer who talked ah, Julius Speer he figured in her work she oh. fell in love with him she tried to seduce him she managed managed to seduce him she became his secretary she yeah until he his death or shortly before his death he was a major figure in her diaries he also died in September. He also recommended her to write a diary. Yeah, 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 yeah. As a yeah. part of her process, or yeah. So. yeah, yeah. He did that to more. He advised more people to begin a diary, to write down and become aware of what it is that's in your thoughts, mm. and to recognize patterns of behavior. And so, writing was really writing a diary was really a tool for him to learn people about themselves. And if we if they move a little move to Speer, you told me how you found him. Yeah, but I haven't said anything about him yet. No. Julius Speer was born in Frankfurt am Main in a Jewish family. He was the fifth son, and he had one sister elder than him, and then after him came two more daughters. His father was a leather manufacturer his parents were related so they were they were related so they had to they had to ask permission from the the city council or something to marry she was some years younger than 16 years younger than her husband yeah so he he grew up in a typical jewish family musical music minded family they played music together and spear loved to sing he wanted to become an opera singer, but at the age of 16, he caught diphtheria and that left his hearing highly impaired. Still, he maintained his dream. So he sang and, but as a hobby at the age of 14 or something, 13, 14, he went to one of the two metal trading businesses in Frankfurt online, just as a junior. And he climbed up the la ladder in this metal trading community. And he did that for 25 years. And in addition, he kept on singing. At some point it was clear that he would not be able to become an opera singer. So he stayed in the metal factory. And he was a personnel manager or did something in the trading. And um, he was highly appreciated by his colleagues, by his superiors, and also the people that he was looking after. But around 1927, he decided to quit his job, even though he was well-paid and highly appreciated. Because the work was not giving him the satisfaction that the singing was giving him, but the singing 
he could, could not make his career out of it. In the meantime, he had married two little children, a boy and a girl. And around 1927, when he stopped working at the, fact, at, at the business, the, the, the metal trading business, he assigned at a, a learning course by Jung in Zurich, a Lear Analyse. So it's not a Heil Analyse, something for healing, but just to learn how to become a therapist. And this course consisted of approximately six blocks of a month. And he and his wife enrolled in this course together. She quits. She didn't finish it. His wife, Spear's wife. Uh, Spear was, by the way, married to a non-Jewish woman. She was a daughter of a publisher. Yeah. She was an Aryan, not, not a certain Christian woman. Yes. She stopped with the course, but P Spear continued. Now, somewhere during this course, Spear encountered or talked to Jung or had a session with Jung. That is unclear. And during that time, it surfaced that Spear's hobby was hand reading. I call it hand reading. In English, it's palmistry or chiromancy or chirology. There are different terms for it, but I use the term hand reading. Spear looked at the hand as a whole and not just the palm as the mm. palmistry indicates, but mm. looks at the whole hand. When this surfaced, he somehow must have impressed Jung or others because what happened was that Wolfgang Meyer, he was the head of the work Holtzley Clinic in Zurich, and a few other doctors set up a couple of small tests for Spear, or a small, set up a few experiments to test Spear's ability of hand reading. And Spear, I only know of three things, three uh, cases they set up for him. And there's no uh, written material about it, but from the anecdotes that have been passed on to the, or have been told, it's clear that Spear impressed Jung and Meyer and all the other doctors. And then he was allowed to give courses on the type of, the method of hand trading he was developing. So to learn others how to look at the hands and do yeah, help, help. It may help to diagnose patients. And the fallout of these uh, tests, do we know anything about if they were successful or not? Yeah. 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 One of the tests was that they selected about 30 patients from the Burkholzley clinic and they spear saw their hands. And he didn't know anything about the patients and he diagnosed them and he said, well, and then it turned out that about half of it, that he was accurate with his diagnosis. So his diagnosis, his diagnosis of a patient was in line, in harmony with what the doctors had diagnosed. Now the other half was not in accordance with their views, but even 
with an at random test to match 15 is already a good percentage. Mm. It's, it's high. Mm. And then they started to check the diagnose that Spear had given about the other 15, the other half that did not was in harmony with the original diagnose of the doctors. Mm -hmm. And then they had to agree that what Spear had said was right. So he matched all 30 of them. There's no proof whatsoever, but this is the story. This is the story. And that was quite impressive. Hmm. Yeah. In another case, they uh, presented him plaster casts of uh, hands of people, uh, of young boys that were in a mental institution and they were also, uh, yeah. they were severely, yeah, were severe cases the criminals and, and when Spear was watching those plaster casts after having seen a few of them, he felt uncomfortable because the people that he was encountering through the plaster casts of the hands that way, yeah, was a criminal or a, a psychopath or, so he felt uncomfortable and then he asked well, what is, where do these hands come from? And then they had to tell him. There's nothing more than this story about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting. Absolutely. Jung advised him that he left Frankfurt am Main and opened a practice in Berlin, which he did. So he went in the summer or in the spring or in the summer of 1929. He moved with his wife and their two, two children to Berlin and he opened his practice and he was immediately successful there. Hmm. Yeah. Was it like that, that you, I think you read in one of your papers that you, you gave him some letters of recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Some people in Berlin yeah. to sort of. Yeah. And, uh, presumably also Wolfgang Meyer handed him a letter and he had some other connections with doctors that, and I think all that stems from his time in Zurich. Yeah. 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 So that was very beneficial. And what he also did, what was new on his methods, he did not forecast people's future anymore. That's something to, to predict events that will happen. You will uh, marry and get two children, or you will uh, become successful in your career, or you be aware of an accident that might happen or stuff like that. That's highly associated with palm reading, he distanced himself from that practice, from for, fortune telling. He did not want to do that anymore. He did that in the past when he, yeah, that's another thing that I can tell. Spear encountered hand reading through a lecture by a neurologist in 1905, somewhere on the, yeah, a town on the, the Baltic coast. And that doctor was presenting hand reading and graphology and astrology, maybe mm -hmm. as tools to diagnose patients. Well, Spear wasn't interested in the, the handwriting analysis or astrology, but he really was captured about the, the hand reading. So what can hands tell? And then he had one or two lessons with this doctor and develops his own way of reading hands 
by himself, maybe with one or two handbooks or, and he just kept on reading hands by whomever he encountered and was able to ask, may I see your hands? Hmm. So that's how he learned how to say something about a person to, yeah, whether you're a fit, healthy person, whether you have problems with your lungs or if your kidneys are in danger or whether you're happily married or encountered uh, difficulties during your youth, whether your parents were nice or very strict or mm. something horrible happened when you were a child, where you but could had a bright mind or mm. all kinds of things. So he, he and, and then he was able to, to say useful things about people, about themselves. And he could relate that to hand features. Hmm. And, and, and what he and what he developed instead of fortune telling. Hmm. So the hands, they tell something about your constitution and about what Spear did. He made an, through the hands he could make an analysis of your potential. So your inborn nature, what your strong points, your weak points, your so that's your potential. On the other hand, he could see how a person had developed over time. So at the moment of the analysis in opposition to the potential. Hmm. So whether it was in harmony with the potential or whether it was limited or neurosis had developed or the status quo of the, of the moment, the status quo of the moment of the analysis. So how was a person? So he had a. Two points, basically, one of how the person was mm. at the time of the reading and how he or she could develop once it develops in harmony with the potential, the inborn nature. And from that, uh, or through the analysis, he could also see in which areas someone had to work to become more in line with mm. innate potential. So instead of forecasting events, mm -hmm. he forecast or he shared what he saw as the potential mm. and that gave a direction. So you have the status quo, the, the being at the moment of the analysis mm. and you get a direction of where you can develop to. So you become more in line with your inner nature. His method was a dynamic method. So not. If you do enhance analysis, you're not a static person. You are this way and you will always be this way. No, you had an ability to unfold, to yeah, come to individuation, to use a Jungian term, to unfold yourself. And would so, he use Jungian terms or psychoanalytic yeah. terms? Yeah. Also yeah, yeah, yeah. Place, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He would speak of the unconscious or yeah. individuation. As yeah. And he also assigned Jungian terms to the hand. So the particular part was that's the unconscious in the palm or that's the conscious and that's the thinking and that's an intuition line. And so he used Jungian terms in his analysis. Yes. And, it's, I think and also this, this, this unfoldment of the self, that's typical Jungian. Hmm. So he, he drew that into uh, his method. Yeah. At this method, he named it psychotherology. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. And he went, Jung sent him to Berlin with his, with the method and, yeah. and, and from there, I mean, what, what do we know about his years in Berlin? Then was there something to say about that? He had quick success, you say. Yeah. He, Jung recommended him to Miss André, Frau André. I forgot her last name now. Valentin André. Anyway, she was a high society lady in Berlin. And she organized, she did that for other people as well. So she had a, a meeting and Speer was allowed to present his new methods to the high society in Berlin. And there was a, uh, a journalist there. So the next day there was a story in a newspaper. Look, there's a new phenomenon in town. Mm. Yeah, and that spread like wildfire. Mm. So then he would have consultations, people coming yeah. to him. He had consultations and he traveled in the country to various cities to give a presentation there. Yes. And when there was, when people were interested, he was giving a course or just uh, explaining it more in depth. Yeah. I think a course could be an afternoon or a couple of afternoons and depending on what students wanted, mm. he focused initially on doctors and yeah, people in the um, educational fields. Mm -hmm. Criminals, maybe, or no, not criminals, but uh, people working with criminals in the justice system. Yeah. Uh, and then later on, laymen came, but many of them were, they stabbed, or many, there were certainly some that came from Jungian circles mm. or from the Jungian circle in Berlin also. Yeah. And the, many names I do not know. I only know a few. Yeah. yeah. And he did that until uh, 1933. Early 1933, was that because then Hitler came to power and the world went in a different phase. And he was not allowed anymore to, as a Jew, to work openly. His marriage dissolved in 35. Yeah, so he had a difficult time. He went to the Netherlands in 34 to see if he could open up a practice there or he looked for opportunities in England, in Switzerland to leave Germany. And then in February 1939, he left for the Netherlands and stayed in the Netherlands for three more years until his death in September 42. Well, this technique that he developed, uh, it, it, it got recognition. He had a full practice, it sounds like, in Berlin. But I'm wondering also, the, because it, it, that's what's so fascinating with your scholarship, with your research, finding these uh, bloodlines that has forgotten, or yeah. maybe some of this has also dried out. I mean, if I understand it right, the psychochirology, it sort of faded. Yeah. That's a, that is an interesting thing. Even people reading hands themselves, they don't know their history well enough. They don't know their history. They know a few names. And when they sketch a history, when books about hand reading, they usually sketch a history in a page, two pages. They drop some names and then they tangent off to their own method and tell all about it. So the history, it's a long tradition for 2000 years or whatever. And then Pythagoras did it or I don't know, names in it, big names. But it's, a lot of it's just made up. It's not substantiated with facts. 
could that that being the case, facts are that under the influence of theosophy that came up in the late 19th century. Theosophy. Theosophy. Yeah. And there were other occult movements in Britain, France. So there was a new interest through theosophy and through other occult movements in old divination techniques. So what's an old divination technique? Reading hands, palmistry. In England, under this fascination for stuff like that, there was an, uh, a school law or a social, an institute about chirology was founded. So it, it finally got more recognition and that moved to Germany. So there were articles in a theosophical journal about hand reading. And then one by one, it got more exposure. Now we're talking the early 20th century or when? when? No, the late 19th century. The late 19th century. Late 19th century. Yeah. And that moved into the early 20th century. Mm. And there were several people reading hands. And then suddenly, so it, the, the more books appeared, people practicing it. And they were, part of it was in the theosophical community. But hand reading is not necessarily related to theosophical, to, to theosophical doctrine. But it mingles. Mm. And then suddenly in 1920, more books entered the markets. More people were practicing it. And you got various types of hand reading. And around 1920, psychology was also moving in, within science, it was, you had Freud, you had Adler. So that was fashionable. And then whenever something is fashionable, old traditions, there is a mutual or there's a merging of ideas. A really interesting scene. Really interesting. Yeah. He had to move. He had to flee. Yeah. Uh, but, but what Okay. What happened with hand reading? Yeah. It has psychologized. No matter what, even, but they don't call it psychochirology anymore. They just call it now chirology as opposite to chiromancy or palmistry. With palmistry or uh, chiromancy, there is still mancy mantaya, fortune telling, divination. So do something with your cult in it. But nowadays, many hand readers, it's not, they present what they're doing with hand reading as a tool to, or a technique, so an individual can grow according to his innate nature, to help a person become aware of him or herself and become a happy person or, and live according to your talents. And so what Spear in essence did has become an intrinsic elements in hand reading, in modern hand reading. Mm. But that started in the 1920s, 1930s. But when you say, and I think you said so the, the, the term psychochirology has died out. 
even though there are, yeah, in, in principle, it has died out. But what he did has not died out, even though the way Speer was reading Hans is not, is not practiced anymore. Every hand reader learns his, his or her own way of reading hands. So there are techniques and there are names to, to hand features, etc. But in the end, it's a hand reader and he is, a hand is a tool to say something about the other person. So it's a beat. But it's not a, it's not necessarily fortune telling practice anymore. It's a psycho, it's more of a psychological yeah. technique. So in, yeah. that, in that way, Spear was a forerunner or a pioneer yeah. in a sense. But I'm also wondering if you, uh, who, who read, uh, I'm sure his two books that were published, yeah. how, do they stand the, the test of time? How is it really? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The uh, Spears book only stands the test of time because Jung wrote a foreword to it. And by Jung's foreword, handwriting is upgraded. So he's referred to, because, well, even a person like Jung, so it's not an, you cannot dismiss handwriting. There is a man, uh, a well-known man, a doctor, a psychiatrist, who acknowledged handwriting. So Speer is referred to and remembered among handreaders mm. because of the foreword of Jung in his book. What about uh, Speer and Hinnison? Could, could we speak a little bit more about <laughs> their, their relationship? Uh, uh, yeah, that's a very... Yeah, village, and we know the influence that Speer had on Hinnison. But I also wonder, yeah, the other way around, you know, how, how she influenced him. Because reading her, she's a thinker of her own. I mean, that, there's no doubt about that. The way she speaks and her perspective on the world is, is very unique, I'd say. So I'm, 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 do we know how, how Hillesum influenced Speer? When the books, when uh, Hillesum's book came out, or the section of her diaries in 1981, there were still some friends of her alive and they met and there was a circle of friends around Speer in which Etty Hilsen was part of it during the early years of the war. They called that the Speer Club. It's a, a, a circle of friends around Julius Speer and Etty was part of that. And so members of the Speer Club met again when her diaries published and they got they yeah new friendships formed but all these men and women were of age at the time what they said was okay Hilletti had a beautiful way of writing and they read things in her diaries that they didn't know but Say they, uh, some of them said, you can tell that she was writing things as if it was coming for, from her, but it actually was coming from Spear. So the influence of Spear certainly was enormous. That doesn't mean that Etty had a, a genius mind of her own. And she was able to incorporate everything that she had learned from Speer in her own writing. 
or in, an, in, in our own thinking. But there is much, there, we should not underestimate Spears' influence. That's my view on it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, your question, did she have an influence on Spear? Yes, she seduced him. Yes, she was jealous of other women in his life. Spear was a womanizer. He loved women. He had many friendships with women, also with men. But once she entered the scene, she took over the secretary role that one of the other girls had. And then when she thought that he had spent too much time with one of the other ladies, she nagged Spear. So she had, he had to manage all the women around him also because of her. She was, yeah. But at the same time, they were, he it must have been attracted to her. She was, even with all her neuroses, etc. she was an energetic, lively, creative, fun um, young woman. And she was warm-blooded. She liked physical contact with the man. Spear was also a warm person. He was lively, gay, gay in sense of humor, singing, joy, laughter, fun. And he wanted to help the other person. He also wanted to help women to become a real woman, women to become real and not be less than men. He wanted the best for the other person. Now with Eddie, so Spear, was, he, he liked to touch the other person and Eddie liked to be touched and to be held and to be loved, etc. So they found each other and they both were Jewish. And now under the pressure of the war, it was not more than natural that they, the two of them found themselves or were intimate with themselves, were intimate. Yeah. In the meantime, Spear was engaged to another Jewish woman, Hertha Levy. She features also in Eddie's books. Hertha Levy was uh, way younger than Spear, had bit the age of his daughter. Hertha had fled to London, where they had met in August or September 39. So a few months after Spear had settled in Amsterdam, he had seen Hertha and then they became engaged and they uh, wanted to marry, didn't go through. They wanted to marry so they could be together. And they were writing each other on a daily basis. But letters with the war couldn't be delivered on time. So there were upheavals in the stream of exchange mm. letters. So. Uh, Speer had given his heart to Hertha. He wanted to be faithful to her. But under the pressure of the war and under the pressure of a woman like Etty Hillesum, yeah, uh, yeah, at some point he, uh, he couldn't resist. A letter to Julius Speer. Wednesday afternoon, the 13th of August. 1941. You most terrible of all terrible fellows. Do keep writing to me and write a lot. 
I don't feel in the least like writing today, and in all probability, I shan't be feeling like it tomorrow either. Do you know what I've been feeling like these last few days? Like an ocean. A wide, deep, nameless ocean. And have you ever heard of an ocean writing letters? An ocean does not even know what a letter is. It is deep and wide, and that is enough. I have been spending such a strange week here, perhaps one of the most productive I have ever had while holidaying with my parents. This week, despite the many diversionary tactics from outside, I have turned inwards and consolidated my inner self, and now I'm experiencing one of those rare moments when I am so at peace with myself that I have not the slightest need to write to you. I have strong and positive feelings for you, but no words. And if I were with you, I would simply look at you trustingly and not say very much, and perhaps ask your dear big hand to stroke me a little. And yes, of course, I would fill your ears with chatter, but you would understand, wouldn't you? I know how irritating it is not to get proper replies to one's letters, but all I want to say now is that your letters stimulate me tremendously. Please, please, you'll have to make do with this meager reaction today. You'll have to get up early Monday morning, you poor thing, for your secretary will come marching into your room at nine o'clock. I'm catching the 749 train and must be back by 815 in the evening. It could turn into a long and productive day. I'm overjoyed. You don't have to fit fetch me from the train. I shall find my own way. Even though you, you shared in a very thorough and interesting way how you helped and supported and uh, yep. put, put Speer on the right path, so to speak. But what about the other way around? What, what influence did Speer have on Jung or the union? Yeah, and you requested in one of your questions before, and then I thought that's a very... Because I can, one more thing is, because isn't it true that, that he did read uh, Jung's hand and also von Franz's hand I'm not sure if he did read Jung's hands. Are we not sure? We are, no, I'm not sure. That's But certainly, maybe he did. Maybe he did. I, I just don't know. I have no proof for it, of it. But our hand, there is a handprint of Jung made, I think, in 1933. And then there's another one made in 42, And there's another one later on. So there is a, there's a sequence. Mm -hmm. Of three handprints of Jung. Well, and, and this peer must have read the hands of many people in Jungian circles. Yeah, and one of them was by was Marie Louise von Franz hands. Yeah. And she was impressed, but she wrote much later about it, and then she turned him into or she sketched him as a very intuitive person who only 
used the hands as an entry into reading an energy field or whatever way she described it. Mm -hmm. She wasn't, she, uh, that's what she did. It was just a small anecdote in one of her books. And she must have been quite young when, and not when Spear read her hands. She was, she wasn't, uh, must have been around yeah, maybe 37, 31, okay. I don't know. I have to look it up in my thesis, sorted it out. Mm. Yeah. But there were also some other unions that uh, read hands or were maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. directly. So, uh, uh, to go back to your question, yeah. if, uh, Spear had an influence on Jung. Mm. I find a different, no, not that, but what definitely must have altered Jung's perception on hand reading is that it could be of, if someone like Jung, uh, someone like Spear could read hands so well, there must be something valid in it. So it must have altered his view upon hand reading as a technique or as a practice. And it could be learned well. So in that respect, Speer will have had an influence on Jung. The other way around was Speer highly looked up to Jung. Yeah, he was really appreciative of Jung. And Jung helped him a couple of times with letters of recommendation. And were there, were there also unions who were trained, so to speak, by spirit in hand reading or? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's also an interesting thing through my study, what I discovered. Uh, spirit is remembered through the diaries of Eddie Hillison. So he came to life again in the early 80s when the uh, Hillison's book was published. And then she describes this group of students around Spear in Amsterdam. And Naturally, you get, you get the idea, okay, Spear students were his Amsterdam students. Etty Hillison was one of them, but she died. There were a few others. They all died or they stopped reading hands. So his school faded out with his own passing and with the war, it faded out. Well, that's not the case because there were others in Berlin who he taught his principles of hand reading, who continue to read hands. I have this, and I found a couple of persons who were among his students. One is Julie Neumann, the wife of Erich Neumann. And she went with a friend of hers, Katja Klopfer. And Julie and Katja, they went to Tel Aviv. So they were Jewish. They left Germany and they settled in Tel Aviv. And they initially practiced hand reading together in Tel Aviv. And then some moment their ways parted. But Julie Neumann has been a very well-known hand reader in Tel Aviv. And so is Katja Klopfer. And Katja Klopfer kept on reading hands until... She died when she was almost a hundred or something. She, she became very old and she's been reading hands or people have came to her until maybe 95 or when she was still 95. So she must have, she learned it from Spear and whatever she did afterwards, how she developed, I do not know. 
the same with Julie Neumann, but they were well-recognized hand readers in Israel, or first Palestinian and then Israel. So they moved to there and did their thing there. There's another one, Kate Marcus. She studied, I think, philosophy, was doctor, a doctor in philosophy. She, I think in the later 1930s, that she learned to read hands or had lessons from Spear. And she fled to New York and then later on settled in California and became there one of the founding members of the Union Club in Los Angeles. And she kept on reading hands among being a Union therapist. Mm. So there is a, tra a tradition within the Union milieu. mentioned also a story about Yuli Neumann, no, that it was that Eric Neumann actually at times yeah. sent patients to her. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, to read their hands, yeah? Yeah. So he was uh, convinced of her, the, the, the worth of hand reading that his wife did. But, but I'm also wondering about Jung in this, you know, is yeah. there something to say about Jung's influence? Yeah, uh, Speer, he promoted Jung. And so he gave one of the... He gave a book about Jung to one of the friends, and I do have that at home. With so he was sharing Jung's ideas, and not only in his lessons or in the private counseling, or but he was actually handing, gifting them a book. Mm -hmm. And Etty, of course, Etty read everything that Spear was reading, so she was also reading Jung. Mm -hmm. And she typed up uh, several pages of Jung's, one of Jung's book. She did that. Yeah. So she, and Jungian thought was passed on. It was also yeah, passed on to other students. So Jung was being more read and talked about and discussed and through Spear. Mm. Yeah. Mm. One of the things that strikes me really Hillison is her faith and how she speaks about faith in yeah. the time of uh, absolute worst possible terror and how she yeah, and how she still carries on her faith in the worst of possible times that's is remarkable in a way like the test of 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 the time that she had to face yeah. and how she carries on faith and how she speaks of god and how she speaks of yeah. carrying carrying god and sort of also doing some work for god by holding a place for him inside yeah isn't it beautiful it's so beautiful yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm wondering, going back to Speer and he, his faith, because he was Jewish, yeah. but also know he, he, he spoke of you know sections of the Bible, and he, he seemed yeah. to also have an interest in Christian ideas. Yeah. What, what do we know about his faith? As I said before, Speer was married to a non to a Christian woman, and she was interested into the the Rittelmeier, the the. Christengemeinde, so more a theosophical, anthroposophical community thinking in that. So he, he must have gotten ideas from already Christian ideas through his wife and the community they were living in. Now, in, when he came to the Netherlands, he met 
on the tra- well, on the tram metro that he befriended. He saw her hands. He, he knew that she was singing. He invited her for a session. And after that, they, they developed a friendship. And she was one of the, the Spear Club participants. Her name is Henny Tiedemann. Now, Henny Tiedemann, she was very much into Christian thinking. And she had joined the Oxford movement. An evangelical movement. Frank Buchmann is the founder's name. And it's under the influence of Henny Tiedemann that Speer began to read the New Testament. And he began to do that in December 1940. So that was shortly before Etty Hillesum entered his life. Because she entered his life in February 41. And he had began to read the Bible in December 40. And he kept on doing that until approximately um, May 41. And then he kept on reading in it, but not as that, not in the way that he was taking notes, but he passed ideas that he picked up from the Bible and he incorporated that or moved it into words, his own thinking. So he used Christian texts or Bible texts into his own Jungian way of thinking. So he, and that mixes and merges. Mm-hmm. So in that, in the time that he was very much into reading the Bible, Etty Hillison entered his life. And it, whenever he was full of something, he spread it around. And Etty was eager to pick up everything that Spear was telling. So she was incorporating it in her life. So it was under the influence of this friend in the Oxford movement that it was passed on to Spear and was passed on from Spear to Etty Hillison. And this Henny Tiedemann, this friend, she also had an influence on Etty in her Christian thinking. Mm-hmm. After, somewhere in spring or yeah, late spring of 1941, Speer was given by another friend a book by Rittelmeier, Das Johannes Evangelium, Johannes and then he was full of that book and he recommended that book to his students and his friends. And he was quoting from that book. Mm-hmm. But that was also Christian, but it's not Christian in the Bible. It's a different Christianity again. But it was, it was read, it was inspiration. In the last year of Etty, after Speer had passed away and she was still in the Netherlands before she before she went to the camp and was never to come back. She was ill. That was 43, 1943, first half of 1943. We have a booklet with citations that Etty wrote in this booklet. It's about uh, the Levenskunst, the, um, the art of living. The, the reader was invited to cite quotations that or cite passages that they found inspirational in harmony with the theme of the week. Let's put it that way. Mm. Now, in Etty, we found that this book is saved, kept, 
and all the passages that Etty wrote in it have been analyzed. And it's a late reception of the reading of Etty Hillison. Now, in, in what Etty was reading was, it, uh, was taken from other Christian authors, and it was a particular way of thinking popular at the time that Etty was inspired by two. So she, and Etty had the habit of picking up a book, reading passages, and then putting it aside, picking up another book. Mm. So she was like a deer. You eat a little bit of here and a little bit of there and a little bit. That's how Etty read. And in her, the corpus of her reading were more Christian authors than just the Bible. And from that, she, she developed her view upon life and upon the war and up what was going on and her own faith and her Do own decision to go to, to be part of, to yeah, be part of her people, the faith, the fate of her people. Mm. She, she had the opportunity to go into hiding, but she did not, she decided not to do that. that you're sitting with or something lingering, you know? Like, yeah, the, the lingering in my mind right now is that I wrote also, or through the research on Julius Speer, I discovered that he had read Albert Einstein's hands. It says something about Speer, but it says also something about the fascination of hand reading in the, uh, in the time that Einstein and Speer and the others were reading Hans in Berlin. And, and, and is there something to say about that reading of Einstein's hand? Do we know what he felt? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, uh, Einstein was very skeptical, but also very curious. And what's also in it is that he encountered a Dutch psychic in Berlin who was there one evening or an afternoon to read the, the objects that people had handed in, and she had read the, a watch that Einstein had handed in, and Einstein was just blown away. Einstein, he was just, he was very curious, and he was very skeptical. Mm -hmm.